Right, instead, we're going to talk about ethics today. Um, this is actually a surprisingly challenging thing to talk about because there's not really a system. Judaism normally loves the system, uh, but actually ethics is somewhere where it's really subjective in many ways. It's kind of the definition of ethics, I suppose. And um, thank you. The, um, the thing is about one way to characterize, and I've just written all this in Hebrew because my brain is fried and because I, I just for my own aid, really. But you can characterize Judaism, I suppose, by being kind of two things, right? What it means to be a Jewish person means that part of it is about observing mitzvot. And these are all the commandments. There's 613 of them for those keeping track at home. Um, and they're all things that you have to do. They're prescriptive, right? They're do this or don't do this. There's 365 uh, positive, sorry, 365 negative mitzvot and 248 positive mitzvot. Are there actually that many? I mean, it depends how you count, but this is a kind of one way to count them. There actually were people who quite often raised the question of this is stupid. There's not 613. Hello. Um, at different stages. But for a long time, this has been the kind of established way to interpret the Torah is that there's 613 times where God says to do something or not do something. Most of those are actually impossible for us to do today in 2023 in Britain. A huge amount of them have to do with the sacrificial system. A huge amount have to do with the purity system. Some of them have to do with agriculture, quite a lot, actually. So the amount that actually apply to us on a day-to-day -day basis are probably between 100 to 200, depending on who you are and where you live. Um, that said, our basic orientation towards religion is about doing mitzvot, finding ways to fulfill and perform the mitzvot. There's several reasons why someone might do the mitzvot. It depends kind of who you are and how you're educated. Some people do the mitzvot because God said so, and that's it. Some people do them because actually they like doing it and because it's useful to them and it makes them feel better. Some people do it because their parents did it and they don't really know why, but they're still doing it also. And some people do it because they actually believe that it causes some kind of change in the world around them, that it's like magic or theurgy, right? That's the Chabad guys who are standing on the street corner with the lulav and etrog trying to get you to shake it. They actually think that if you do, it's going to bring about the end of the world faster, which to me is not a good thing, but to them it is. Um, don't want to say apocalyptic death cult, but it's not that different either. So um, the approach to the mitzvot varies. The mitzvot themselves don't, right? Um, mitzvah is to, I don't know, pay your employees on time. That's a mitzvah. The Torah says specifically, if you have employees, you need to make sure you pay them for that day's wages on that day so they can go and use the money. You can't hold it and hold it hostage. You can't take kind of collateral from them, especially things that are necessary for them, like their garments. So there's some pretty basic things that are included in this that actually some people do, some people don't, and sometimes get ignored. What most people mean when they say mitzvot are actually a very small handful of maybe 20 to 30 things which are involved in kind of ritual personal performance. Things like putting on tefillin in the morning, observing Shabbat, having a Pesach Seder, whatever. Right? That's usually what people say when they say they're Shomer mitzvot, is they do those things. It actually doesn't include a huge amount. That's part of the problem with the whole category of orthodox Shomer mitzvot world is it's quite selective in its own merit. And it's more about these are the things we think are important. And if you don't do them, you're out, as opposed to actually looking at the holistic system of the mitzvot. Regardless, the question stands, and it's a very good question, does doing the mitzvot make you a good person? And also, what is a good person? And also, do we want to be good people? I think we could probably work backwards and say, we probably do want to be good people, I, I would hope, right? The question then is, what is a good person? And that's a little bit harder to define. We know who is someone who we think of as a good person. And then the question is, do the mitzvot actually help you to be that good person? So um, let's assume that everyone here wants to be a good person or thinks that's a good thing. Hi, Amanda. Um, hi, Diego. So um, let's assume that's the case, that you would like to be a good person. I would like you to be a good person also. The question then is, what is a good person? Right where we are. Okay. Yeah. yeah, at the moment, we're not going to answer the question. I don't think because it's a big one. But yeah. what 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 would you say, Robin? Makes a good person a good person. 
Yeah, like what, what you know, if, if you see someone or you know someone, you go, that's a really good person. Why? Okay. I'm going to simplify that to help others, right? Enhance, help the lives of others, do things that benefit other people, specifically not the self, but instead others. Okay. Okay. Charity. What does charity mean? Okay. Giving of oneself to those in need. Okay. Okay. Okay, so maybe someone who's what we call selfless, which is a really interesting word, by the way. I think it's quite impossible to have a, to not have a self, but we use that that person so selfless, right? Because we we're saying it as a compliment that they're they're so good they do things for other people. Right, really good. Okay, so sometimes it's characteristics, things that we would describe, but not actually actions. Someone who's honest, thoughtful, authentic. Could someone who has all those characteristics still do bad stuff? Yeah, sure, right? But maybe it's less likely they would, because if they're really honest and really thoughtful about it, they would maybe act better. So the goal is that this brings someone to be, to act better, but it doesn't necessarily... That's You can't just say that someone who's good does good things, because then you have to define what good things are. Yes, very nice. Okay. I like that. Positive impact. They don't make things worse, at least. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's a low bar. Decency is a pretty low bar these days. Is this generally kind of agreed on anything that we're missing, you think, is for a good person? We have help others, give charity, help others more than yourself, be selfless, authentic, honest, thoughtful, and have a positive impact. Oh. Psychologist has entered the chat. Okay. Okay. Intention versus behavior. Very good. Yes. Right. Right. This is the challenge, right? To some degree, is this issue of context. We tend to use the language about good people and bad people. Um, I would say that probably from a Jewish point of view, that's just not supported, really. There are good actions and bad actions. There definitely is good and bad, but there are things that are done rather than the people that do them. So we generally, I mean, we do have lots of words for people we consider people who do especially good things, someone who's a sadiq, a righteous person, or someone who's a rasha, a wicked person. They're people who you know, are known to be either really good or really bad. But actually, we kind of blur the lines between whether we're talking about them essentially as a person or the actions that they do. Judaism tends to really sit very carefully with what Renata has raised here of the intention versus the behavior. And actually what today would kind of be counted as therapy is probably originated in a lot of senses in Jewish community and the way that Jews think. So it might seem a little bit anticlimactic, but actually most of the insights of contemporary psychology are probably derived from the way in which Jews think about ethics and behavior. So our, our version of ethics is kind of one out. Mm. So, what causes that behavior? Yeah. Well. Oh, no, no. The band. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Oh, very good. So, I don't know. Yeah, well, this is the context, right? Can you be a perpetrator and a victim? Can you be a good guy and a bad guy? Yeah. Right, I think that's the real insight in some way of Jewish sources is that it's not about you as a person being either good or bad. It's about the action. And each action needs to be evaluated in its context, considering what's going on, and then as a result, kind of weighed over time. So the earliest Jewish sources, the way they deal with this is they use a lot of imagery around um, 
feels like a wrong way to say this, but banking, um, in that they think about ethics as kind of like a ledger, right? So there's actually in Perkei Vote many comments about how basically your actions are like a ledger. If you do something good, it gets written down for a credit. If you do something bad, it gets written down for a debit. And you want to be in the black, right, at the end of the day. Is that correct? The black? Yes. Okay. Economist, thank you. So you don't want to end up in the red. Okay, well, you, know, you don't want you don't want to end up in the red, right? You want to be more you want to do more good things than bad things. It seems like an incredibly mercenary approach to ethics, but actually it makes a lot of sense in some way because the rabbis saw ethics as a matter of behavior more than anything else. You can have lots of bad intentions, but what matters is what you do. If you do something bad, then it counts against you. If you do something good, then it counts for you. And it gets to a point which seems a little bit not very spiritual, but is actually quite practical, that ultimately, as long as you're 51% good, then you're in, right? By the way, what does it mean to be in? I don't know, right? We don't have a heaven, a hell, a salvation we're talking about. It's just a matter of evaluating people's character. Um, but the goal is to simply do more good things than bad things. That's where mitzvot really come into the system. So mitzvot actually are part of the ethical system, right? Because the rabbis understood that the mitzvot we're asked to do are things that help to benefit the world positively or benefit ourselves positively. Some of them are very obviously the case, right? Things are commands around justice, around paying your workers on time, around not exploiting other people, around loving other people. Those things feel obviously like they're part of an ethical system where we're characterizing actions as having a certain degree of value one way or the other. But there's lots of other aspects of behavior that aren't covered by mitzvot. And that's where the other part, which is really accurately best called Jewish ethics, comes in, which is what we call midot. So midot and mitzvot together, I would say, uh, kind of create a system of Jewish ethics. Now, mitzvot are, are something which is completely canonized. There are 613 of them. You can find a list of them. They're in the Torah. They've got a source. Midot are something which is much, much vaguer, culturally subjective, and kind of depends on the time and place and also what community you're in. So what I want to do a little bit is explore some of the midot that make up kind of the Jewish view of ethics, recognizing that they're not commandments in the sense, but instead ways of quantifying how one behaves. Got another M word for you before we do that, uh, which is musar. So musar um, is the literature and ideas of ethics, really, in Judaism. And there's lots of books that are called kind of Musar works or Musar literature, going all the way back to the rabbinic times up until today. And basically, there are books and works and communities and whatever that are focused on characteristics. How do you, how do you make yourself, condition yourself to be more likely to do good things? In some communities, this became a really big part of Jewish life. In some communities, it was a very small part of Jewish life. Today, it's kind of had a little bit of a resurgence, but actually for most people in religious communities, it's not actually that important, whereas a lot of people in non-religious communities are, are more interested in these questions. So there's been a kind of weird split where people say, oh, well, either you do the mitzvot or you do the mitzvot, which is contrary to the entire spirit of it, which is about both, right? It's about kind of contextualizing how we observe the commandments of the Torah with characteristics of what makes us good people or people who do good things in better language. So Musar in some communities really grew into a whole movement. So famously in the 19th century in Eastern Europe, where Hasidim became very kind of prevalent and the Hasidic movement grew very much, there was a group of people who really resisted the Hasidic movement because they thought that it was kind of too soft or a variety of other reasons. They didn't like it. They weren't happy about it. And one of the things they did is they kind of rehabilitated this whole literature of Musar. So there was a huge uh, resurgence of interest in Musar in the 19th century, in Lithuania in particular, where you had whole yeshivot, where in addition to studying the Talmud all day, they also spent a lot of time talking about how one develops good character. And a lot of the rabbis were known particularly for being those who were good at helping their students develop good character. There's famous stories of quite extreme depth sometimes. There's one of the yeshivot called Novaradok, which was in one of the small villages in Lithuania, where the rabbi there, the Novaradok Rebbe, or whoever he was, was so intense, I actually don't remember his name, so intense about these Musar things that like with the young students in the yeshiva, he would send them on purpose to go and do embarrassing errands. So he would send a group of them to the hardware store to ask for food, and then he'd send another group to the grocery store to ask for nails. And the point was he wanted them to feel embarrassed. That was part of his training for them, was to develop an attribute of humility. We're going to talk about all these. 
right? Which is anava. That's one of the attributes, anavut, anava, which was really important to him. That was a midah that he thought was very important. There were others that emphasized other aspects and other midot, but the curriculum was literally about kind of training yourself to be a better person. You can see how psychology, right, which is a quite modern discipline, which also didn't really exist before, let's say, late 19th century, but really 20th century, was almost entirely founded by people who were steeped in Jewish learning and Jewish communities, where they grew up thinking about ethics and behavior as something which is contextual, which is linked to intention, but actually can be separated from it and understood on its own, and which ultimately can be evaluated with certain criteria. That seems really obvious to us because we now live in the world that has been created by that assumption, but at the time it wasn't. And there's lots of people to whom this was a revelation, the idea of that behavior was something which could be kind of contextualized and analyzed, and through analyzing our behavior, understand more about ourselves. So um, in some ways, psychology has kind of replaced a lot of this in Judaism, whereas today this isn't the sort of thing you hear about terribly often, but in other ways, it's actually the foundation of it. So there's some things, we're going to look at this list first over here, some things which are part of rabbinic Judaism and in the Torah, which are kind of the, the bedrock of a lot of these ideas of Musar. Um, so, for instance, this one is very fitting to our parsha. I know I've written it all in Hebrew. I'm going to put it in English as well. It's called Hachnasat Orchim. Uh, promise it takes me longer to write in English. Hachnasat Orchim, um, which means welcoming guests or hospitality, literally welcoming guests. So this is a value, right? In terms of ethics, these are values that ethics are centered around. So the value of Hachnasat Orchim is one where you have examples from the Torah, like Abraham, who we're reading about right now, who's so hospitable towards other people. You have a cultural bias in the Middle Eastern cultures in general, that it's responsible for someone to welcome others into their homes. And you have this general sense that is something very important to do, right? That it makes you a good person. There are infinite stories in rabbinic literature about people who fail the test of being hospitable, right? I, there's like hundreds of stories where Elijah the prophet, it's always Elijah the prophet, shows up at someone's house pretending to be an old beggar and knocks on their door and says, oh, I'm cold and hungry, let me in. And the person goes, no, and shuts the door in their face. And then something horrible happens to them, right? And the point of the story is always because they didn't observe the ethical value of Hachnasat Orchim, because they didn't welcome guests into their home, because they weren't hospitable, they're, they're rubbish, right? They did a bad thing, a very bad thing. So it's weighted very heavily in Jewish ethics, something around hospitality. Some of the things that we weight very heavily in Jewish ethics are not weighted that heavily in other cultures. Ethics is culturally specific. And even within Judaism, you have variation. Another example is the Shon Hara. Who's heard about this one? Who's been told off for this one? All right. Uh, what is the Shon Hara? It's gossip. What else is it? Speaking, uh, it's speaking yeah, it's interesting because there's not really a direct comparison. So in English, we often use the word gossip or speaking ill of others or whatever else. But actually, it's kind of it, even things that are true but are unflattering are prohibited to say, right? So even if you're like, it's it's the opposite of the frank culture that you see actually in many communities where someone would be like, you know, that, that jumper just looks really ugly. That would count as a shown haran some way because you're saying something true. It's not about lying. Lying is its own thing, but it's actually something which is hugely detrimental to say to someone and unnecessary to say as well. It's also more obviously saying bad stuff about other people in the hearing of a third party. What's that? Yeah, well, of course, yeah. This is probably the hardest one for people to follow in many ways, and it's because the damage is so significant. There's a famous story you hear cited very often where someone felt really bad about speaking ill of someone. They went to the rabbi and they said, Rabbi, I said all this bad stuff about my friend. What should I do about it? You know, what is it really that big of a deal? The rabbi told him to go home and cut open one of his feather pillows and scatter it to the wind and then come back the next day. And the guy does it. I don't know who listens to the rabbis. Comes back the next day, does it and says, Rabbi, I did the thing. What's the point of the feathers? And he's like, just like you said this thing and you can't take it back. So too, it scatters all the way out and it has all these implications you can't possibly conceive of. So we take these things really seriously. Um, ethics around speech are huge, right? There's not just Lashon Hara. There's also an idea called Rechilut, which is actually lying about someone or deceiving someone. There's an idea of uh, stealing someone's ideas, right, of saying something 
that you say is your idea, even though it's someone else's idea, taking credit for other people's ideas is a huge kind of ethical problem, especially in a rabbinic setting where like, you, if you ever read the Talmud and you see it's really annoying, it's like Rabbi Abba said the name Rabbi Baba The reason they're so, so careful about that is because they take the idea really seriously that if you've heard something and it wasn't your idea, you need to say, I heard this from this guy. Right. And in this case, it was often I heard it from this guy, I heard it from that guy, I heard it from this guy who once saw a bird walk down the street, who heard it from this guy. And it gets a little bit crazy. But the point is, it's a real value on making sure you kind of attribute your sources. That's not part of every culture, but it's definitely part of our culture. There's a huge value. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but that's the nature of this on what we call busha. Right? Busha is shame or embarrassment. Shaming other people is a big no, no. The Talmud says that if you shame someone else, it's worse than murder. I mean, what's worse than murder, right? That's that's kind of the way to say that it's the worst possible thing you can do. Publicly doing something that makes someone else feel ashamed is hugely, hugely, hugely held in very low regard. There's no um, culture of feeling like, you know, when there's a debate or argument, one person shaming another is victorious in any way. It's completely a failure if you end up kind of shaming the person you're speaking to. There's lots, again, lots of stories. It's usually stories which are used to illustrate these midot rather than law, which is used to illustrate the mitzvot. But there's lots of stories about someone who found ways to make sure they avoided shaming someone else. Just one example, modern example. There's a common story about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who died in the 1980s, I believe. Um, and one time people were coming over for Shabbat dinner. And they had this nice white tablecloth set out, and there's all these people. And one of the guests accidentally spilled over the cup, and it spilled wine on the tablecloth. And Heschel, without even thinking, spilled over his cup right away as well, and then kind of looked at somebody else, and they spilled over their cup. And everybody spilled their cups, and the tablecloth was completely red. And the point was, like, you just you do whatever you can to avoid putting one person in a position of shame or embarrassment, um, which is actually quite a nice idea, and one that is completely contradictory to our contemporary world of Twitterati and canceling other people and doxing other people and finding all the horrible stuff and putting it on the internet, right? It's actually a real idea here about not shaming people, even people you don't like. It's not just people you like. It's anyone, right? It's, it's not something you do. So there's these ideas around kind of ethical behavior that are linked to speech, how you talk about people and how you welcome other people into your home, things like that. We're jumping a lot, I know, but that's the nature of it. Okay, um, this one, Shalom Bait. Anyone heard that one? What's that mean? And how is it used? Usually as a weapon. Okay, so let's unpack that. So you were told that because your husband is Sfardi, for the sake of Shalom Bait, you should eat rice and cook rice as well. Yeah, in some way. I mean, it literally means peace at home, right? Peace at home. Um, but it means that actually we put a higher value on not having conflict in the family than on being right, which is hugely useful. There's a story of family Yes. And he went to the races on Shabbat. So the woman took his rightful to the rabbi and said, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, so I don't know that that's a great example, is it, right? So the, a lot of these things can be used, can be weaponized, right, in some way that's not always healthy, right? Just like if someone says something you don't like, you can go, that's Lashon Hara, I won't listen to that, when actually that's not necessarily what Lashon Hara means. Shalom Bayit is, again, and these are not defined, so that's where we get all this fussiness. Shalom Bayit is the concept of the fact that we should do things to try and create peace at home. Basically, kind of, you know, you don't pursue arguments with your family. If, you know, you don't go, I'm right and you're wrong. You make compromises. You kind of do things that's going to make everyone comfortable at home. Eating rice, by the way, is the right choice, regardless of any shalom by Everyone should eat rice on Pesach. When we get to the Pesach lecture, I will rant about rice. Yes. No, exactly. That's that's so. The, it was really a hard brief, actually, in some way, to talk about Jewish ethics because the only structure I can give you is well, there's mitzvot, and then there's all the stuff that's not mitzvot but are ethically important, which are usually concepts, right? Mitzvot. 
Yeah, right. And that's, that's, of course, the interesting part of ethics is what happens when you're in a situation where actually, you know, you heard something bad said about your spouse, but you don't want to tell them because you don't want to upset them. Is it like, which one is more important? That's maybe not the best example, but all of these are things where you're going to find kind of friction. That's what ethics is about, right? It's kind of how do you navigate it? And the way you navigate it in a religious setting is by weighting certain things heavier than others, right? So these are kind of the big ones here. And there's lots of other things which are not that important, right? Which are not held as highly. So to some extent, but no published hierarchy, and it varies. And, and you kind of, you know, when I say it's weighted more heavily, it's like, well, I know a lot of stories about this one and fewer about that one in some sense. So like Lashon Hara is probably one of those really big kind of in lights Jewish ethical things that everyone knows about and talks about, even if they don't understand. And that's used as a way to understand human behavior. Um, right. This one is Shmirat Haguf. What's that mean? Looking after yourself, literally guarding the body. And uh, what do we mean by that? Yeah, literally not putting yourself in danger. Right? You have a responsibility to preserve your body. It also is about health, right? Like it's it is a ethical value. So it's not a mitzvah, right? God doesn't say exercise twice a week. That's not in the Torah, but it is a midah to have shmirata guf, right? To actually take care of your body, to eat well, to make sure that you're mindful of how you're kind of engaging with the world, to not injure yourself or put yourself in harm's way, um, and also this idea of kind of exercise, wellness, well-being, etc. So you kind of hear this thrown around, right? People be like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is Shmirata Goof or whatever. And, and you see that idea being used in many ways, uh, often ways that, you know, some communities weight this higher than others. So, you know, you can argue about in the Haredi world, where they've got kids sitting in yeshiva all day studying Gemara, are they forgetting about Shmirata Goof? They got to get them outside, right? Got to get moving a little bit, got to maybe consider more differently. Or what happens, and this is a very easy one in some way, what happens when one of the laws of kashrut, right, about what you need to eat and everything else, and because you're so nervous about kashrut, you won't eat strawberries, contradicts with the idea of shmirat aguf, that you actually need to be mindful of protecting your body and eating your fruits and veggies. You know, there's ways in which the two kind of interact. And the reality of Jewish practice is usually the mitzvot are going to win. Right? If there's a mitzvah that contradicts something here, then you're probably going to do the mitzvah. You're not going to override it by being like, well, I'm not going to do Shabbat today because actually I want to protect my body. So I'm going to do this instead, right? The mitzvot are definitely in the hierarchy, more significant. And the others kind of fit into those. The more that these are linked to a mitzvah, the more that they hold weight. So often the rabbis will try and provide a proof text for some of these. For instance, hachnasat or chim, welcoming guests, is really easy because there's so many examples of our patriarchs who welcome guests and the rabbis can say, yeah, that's basically a mitzvah, right? We're imitating the patriarchs. But some of them are harder to do. Right? These two down here, this is simcha, which is joy. And for some communities, this is a very, very highly weighted thing. So, for instance, the Breslov Chasidim. Anyone know the Breslov Chasidim, the Breslovers? You know them. You know them if you've ever been in Israel or in Brooklyn, because they're the guys who are in the back of a flatbed pickup truck dancing to techno music all the time. Have you seen this? Yeah? They're usually high out of their mind as well at the same time. So it's a group of Hasidim whose Rebbe, Nachman of Breslov, who actually died like 200 years ago. They just never picked a new one. They're just still on him. Um, he really emphasized simcha as a huge value. It's not a mitzvah, but he said, quote, mitzvah gedola lichyot b'simcha tamid. Right? It, is a, it is a huge mitzvah to be happy all the time. It's not. Like, there's 613 of them. There's a list. It's not on the list. But he said that because in his worldview of Judaism, that was such an important thing. He meant it's like it's an important mitzvah, I hope, right? Because I'm sure he knew what the mitzvot were. And as a result, his followers take that very seriously. And they literally put simcha above all else, including having a job, not taking drugs, whatever else, right? So they're great fun to be around. Some of them are very serious and some of them are very silly, right? And uh, But usually they're kind of having raves in the desert and taking LSD. And that's because... They put simcha as a high value. They're great fun. They'll pull you up onto the pickup trucks, by the way, too. They just, you know, grab people. Um, so if you have the chance, definitely dance with the breast lovers. Okay, this one, kind of the opposite, tochcha, right? This is a value in the Torah of rebuke, right? That actually there's a value 
that you should tell people when they do things wrong. But this one gets really tricky because how do you do that without also embarrassing them, right? And that's a good example of how ethics actually interact because it's interaction where it comes. So for instance, Judaism comes down very heavily on the fact that if you see someone do something wrong, you should tell them, but you should do it in private. Right? So you kind of develop, you see these things interact and you get a sense of actually, how should I behave in this situation? Well, it's important that you kind of help people correct their behavior, but only if they're willing to listen, by the way. So if they're not actually going to change their behavior, then you not, don't have to tell them off for it. Um, and if they're going to listen and you think it'll help, then you should tell them about it, but in a way that won't embarrass them. As you pull them aside later and say, hey, by the way. So there's a way in which actually we can see how behavior becomes scripted. This one is very famous. And actually, this one is really a mitzvah. This is kibud avve'im. Right, honoring one's father and mother. This actually is a mitzvah. It's in the Ten Commandments, as you may know. So it kind of straddles the line because actually the question is, it's a mitzvah to honor your father and your mother. Wow, what does that mean, right? How do you define that? And that's where the ethical components come into it. The rabbis use all of these ethical ideas around what that looks like behaviorally to illustrate the mitzvah. So they'll say things, you know, it looks like, making sure, for instance, that you never sit down before your parents do, right? You kind of show that respect. And this is kind of old-fashioned filial piety type stuff often that maybe doesn't make any sense today. But they tried to define behaviorally how that mitzvah is performed using the framework of ethics, stories, uh, proverbs, parables. That's how these things are explored. Okay. Um, got a couple more over here, and then we're going to look at some of the more straightforward midot. So this one uh, and this one are kind of linked. This is Bikor Cholim. What is this Bikor Cholim? Yeah, visiting the sick, right? So it's a mitzvah to visit the sick, so we say. It's actually not a mitzvah, right? The Torah doesn't say you should visit the sick. But what the Torah does say is that when Abraham was recovering from circumcising himself, God came to visit. And so they use that as a proof text to say, actually, it's really important to visit the sick. It's not a mitzvah because God doesn't tell us to do it, but we can learn from that how we should behave. It's just one example, right? But it seems like a kind of extreme one. Also, God's the one who told him to do it, so whatever. But um, visiting the sick becomes a huge value to the extent that you have people who take this so seriously, right? In Israel, in lots of hospitals, there's mitzvah clowns. Anyone, anyone encountered this before? Mitzvah clowns. Yeah, it's a whole thing, right? And hospitals have clowns. Yeah. Every hospital in Israel has clowns, right? And it's because actually even random strangers, and they're usually volunteers, by the way. They're people who just go in and like do silly stuff. Even random strangers feel like they have an obligation to fulfill in going around visiting the sick. Most of us would only go visit people in hospital who we're related to, and then usually only begrudgingly, right? <laughs> um, the, the idea that you go, actually, this is a value, means that you just you seek out people to visit. Right, you actually go into hospitals and go, who can I, who can I visit? Who can I cheer up? And that's how you end up with this whole practice of having clowns in hospital who are just random people who volunteer to go around, dressed up silly, make weird noises, and try and cheer people up because it's a value, an ethical value that is held very highly. Could it be a dog? Sure. Yeah, I mean the dog doesn't have a, a, a obligation to visit people, <laughs> but but you do, and you can bring the dog with you, right? It's just this idea that if you hear someone sick, you you go to visit, right? And it, it can be a bit, again, a bit overwhelming sometimes, which brings us on to this one, Nihum Avelim, right? Which is what? Comforting mourners, right? So Nihum Avelim is comforting mourners. And this is such a serious one. This is a heavy one in some way that, again, you see this more in a situation where there's more Jewish people and who have more contextual cultural experience. But if you think about in Israel or sometimes in some neighborhoods in North London, I imagine, if you walk past a house and you notice it's 8 p.m. on a weeknight, you notice the door is open and there's people who keep going in, you realize it's a shiva house. What do you do? You go, right? Now, for many of us, especially those who are more anglicized, that seems like the craziest thing in the world. To be like, I'm just going to this house, right? And I'm going to go comfort these random strangers. But if you're at all informed by this traditional cultural ethical framework, you will rush into that house to try and comfort the mourners. You see this, unfortunately, I know we're not talking about Israel right now, but you see this a lot right now in the last couple of weeks. There are so many Shiva houses where people are literally just going from one to the other, to the other, to the other, because it gives them something to do. And because they believe it is a mitzvah, 
this is also one that kind of toes the line between mitzvah and midah in many ways. Well, that's, it seems a bit crazy, but yes, so that's, that's the thing. I think this is the flip side of our approach to ethics being about behavior, right? When we say the ethical thing to do is to comfort mourners, find a mourner, comfort them. And actually we diminish some of the specific context, the fact that it's not always comforting for random people to still, you know, come into your house, start eating your bridge rolls. Um, <laughs> But in the cultural context, people do find it comforting. Right? I mean, it might seem strange, but imagine if you're a mourner and you just have your door open and just people just come in, right, and just are there. Some might find that horrifying. Some might find it comforting. It depends. But if you've grown up on the idea that that is a mitzvah and it's the right thing to do and it's what is correct and ethical, then, you know, you're definitely going to find it positively, hopefully. That sort of relates to what you were saying at the beginning about reason people do the people do it by rent. Yes. And some people do it because they think it's a good thing to do, right? And so you might react differently. Yes. Absolutely. I mean I think what the, the question that we don't ask enough in Jewish spaces, uh in any Jewish space, not just Masoti ones, any Jewish space is why do the beats vote? I think we're afraid and actually, it's a really important question, because why you think you should do the mitzvot will affect both how you observe them and also the ethical piece that goes with it, right? Why be a good person? Why do the mitzvot? They're kind of related questions in some way. Um, and there's kind of two answers, at least two answers. One of them on the why be a good person is because you're worried something bad will happen to you if you're not, right? There's the, there's the act of, of fear that you're doing it because you're afraid if you don't do it, you're going to go to hell, right? This is kind of largely the way in which Christian ethics has evolved is how to avoid going to hell, do these things. For us, that doesn't really apply the same way, but there are lots of people who say they do the mitzvot. I don't know if they would say, but they do. They do the mitzvot or they do good things or they try and be ethical people because they're worried about what happens to them if they don't. They're acting out of fear. There's other people who do it because they think it's good for them. They find it useful, right? It helps them be better people. They feel good when they do it, and so they do it which actually is a quite sensible approach in some ways. And again, there's other people who do it because either they believe God commanded them to do it and that's it, or because they believe that's going to bring about, you know, some change in the world. Those are kind of the four approaches, I suppose. And we, we could label them in some way if we had more boards. Um, but they, they really do have an effect. What did we say the four were? Um, one of them is theurgy, which is a fancy academic word for magic right? So that you do these things because they're going to change the world. This is the dominant approach in a lot of mystical Jewish communities, and especially in Chabad, Hasidut, and others, right? When when Chabad or Aish, great example, are rushing around trying to get everyone to light Shabbat candles, they're not doing it for you. They're doing it because if you do the Shabbat candles, then you're more likely to add more mitzvot, and then you're more likely to bring about Mashiach, and then everything's going to be over, and it's going to be grand, right? It's like a, it's a accelerationist uh, approach to halakha, um, which is problematic. The upside of the theurgy approach is it's very empowering, right? Ooh, if I light Shabbat candles this week, I can change the fabric of reality. Big power. It's also hugely terrifying because if you don't do it, or you fail to do it, or you do it wrong, then you've damaged reality. So that, that's kind of the high stakes game of theurgy in some way, which a lot of Jewish communities are playing with at the moment and have been for the last couple hundred years. Like a lot of Jewish people, religious Jewish people, think about the mitzvot this way. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of similar, right? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I think the question is whether you see that abstractly, like I want to do, I want to have a positive impact, or whether you think, if I take the lulav absolutely right, then it'll have a literal, like a direct correlation to some change in the cosmic structure of the universe, which feels a little bit heavy and specific. It can, it can lead to very obsessive ways of approaching religion, again, because it also it leads to very kind of um, uh, penalizing ways of observing religion, because if you get it wrong, then you're feeling bad, and then you feel worse, and then you're, you're hurting the world, and whatever. It can be a very vicious cycle. Again, very empowering, but also very terrifying.
some people, I mean, some people would say the mitzvot are just, they help in general. Some people would say each one is linked to one, like there's, there's a whole system, for instance, that believes that every mitzvah is linked to an organ of your body. Um, and if you do that mitzvah correctly, then it'll prevent something bad from happening to that organ of your body. Like every organ has a mitzvah. So it's a diagnostic approach then. They still look, oh, there's something wrong with your liver. Well, the mitzvah for liver is this. And it gets a little bit crazy, right? So there's a range, like anything. Hmm? What's the mitzvah for liver? What's the mitzvah for the knees? Probably bowing correctly during the Amidah. Um, okay, so it, it becomes very, very behaviorally prescriptive. The other approaches we talked about is God said so, right? And there's um, there's some people, even modern people, who take this very seriously. Yeshayahu Leibovitz, who was a Jewish philosopher, 20th century, he was actually really, really supportive of this idea that there's no reason you do the mitzvot other than you were told to. That's it. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. You were told to do it, you do it. Actually, kind of simple and kind of easy. And there's definitely lots of religious people who are just like, well, it says do it, so I'll do it. Um, right, so it's a little combination there. He was very, he was a purist, this guy, Leibowitz, that like, you only do it. If you feel good, you've done it wrong. You only do it because God said to do it. There can be no benefit to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's the kind of third one. It's good for you, right? That actually, and that's actually kind of where the body stuff comes from. Is your body is linked to the mitzvot? If you do them well, then it's good for you, and it helps you feel better, and actually it helps you to do whatever. So you have kind of a range. There's a fourth one too. But I can't remember what it is now. It's, 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 it's an obligation on someone else, and the potential they may not be the obligation. Then where they stand. So for instance, you said about yeah. visiting Ah, uh, well, they don't. We we've dealt with this one in particular because mourners are are exempt from welcoming people. And actually, to the extent that in a traditional shiva house, when you go in as a visitor, you're not supposed to talk to them. The mourners are supposed to be the ones to talk first. So in some, I haven't seen it very often because it's very hard to do. But in some shiva houses I've been to, you just go in, and everyone's just sitting there in complete silence because the mourners don't want to talk. Everyone's there to fulfill their obligation of comforting them, and they're fulfilling it because they're there, but the mourners don't want to talk. Yeah, you bring them, bring them food, yeah. Yeah. But that's where the interesting things are, right, is where these things intersect. That's where, actually, ethics really have an impact. Um, there's one more on my list over here. Let's just have a look. I just randomly, by the way, chose. There's lots more than this. This one's Sa'ar Bale Chaim. Anyone know what that is? It's causing pain to living creatures. Um, so there's an ethical value that you shouldn't do things to cause pain to living creatures. Again, this links up with kashrut in many ways. This is why. So kashrut actually doesn't say that you need to kill the animal this way or that way. It's more the ethical value that we don't want to cause unnecessary pain to animals that we do it this way or that way. And the things link up very closely. It also affects a lot of the ways people understand some of their behaviors around how they interact with animals, with eating, with whatever else. So that's one of those kind of ethical ideas that gets kicked around. Yeah. This is your chance. In modern times, it could be proven running is less harmful than playing hooky. Have you asked this question before? No, actually. We talked a little bit about it last week. Change. Would that be evidence of justification for changing the animals? Um, maybe. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of this in some way right now, right? That there are some people who would say absolutely right now, who say the halakha should be different because we know more. And actually, the value of Sa'ar Bale Chaim is it overrides the particular restriction on having to do it with a with a knife in this way. Because what you end up with, Beverly, in this discussion, and to answer your question, I'm going to kind of open another discussion in some way, which is not the same, is you end up having different tiers of precedent that have different significance. So not to get too deep into it, but in halakha, in the mitzvot, we distinguish between mitzvot de'oraita, right, ones that are in the Torah, and mitzvot de'rabbanon, ones the rabbis made up. And 
we can be more flexible with things that the rabbis made up, whereas we can't change what the Torah says. So if the Torah said, you must slaughter an animal using a knife and no other procedure, then there'd be no discussion. We have to do it slaughtering a knife. But actually, the Torah doesn't really say that, right? The Torah says you need to slaughter an animal. It does say you should cut it at the front of the neck, but you could say, well, that's only because they didn't understand that there were alternatives and the rabbis offer us other ways to do it. So you'd have to negotiate this kind of different tiers of actually there's the ethical piece that has to do with the Torah's observance and then all the other things and which one wins out. You kind of throw everything into the pot and then different people will say different things. Some will say actually Sar Chaim means that we should do stunning because it wins out over the, the rabbinic definition of how to do kashrut. Some would say, no, the Torah really insists more on, on using a knife. So that wins out over Sar Chaim. Some would say you got to balance it. You find all sorts of approaches. Another illustration of this is, this is another one I didn't include, which is Kavod HaBriot, which I wrote wrong here. Kavod HaBriot, which is human dignity. I'm going to say it that way, human dignity. This came up in a huge way in exactly this discussion in 2006, when the Masorti movement finally dealt halakhically with the question of same-sex relationships. Right. So in 2006, JTS, the rabbinical school, had to actually finally address the question of whether they were going to admit same-sex students into the rabbinical school, which meant they had to address the question of whether they thought there was any way to have a halakhically observant same-sex relationship. The result was that there was a huge paper written by three rabbis, and it played with this in a really interesting way. So what they said, just to get into the, the nitty-gritty of it to some extent, is that the Torah, what does the Torah actually say about same-sex relationships? It says, in particular, it describes what we can understand as a particular sex act, right? Which is male, male, anal sex. That's what the Torah seems to say. It doesn't give a context, doesn't give an explanation, just says, don't do this thing. But actually, there's a lot more that the Torah doesn't say that comes from the rabbis interpreting and, and deriving stuff from that. So the idea that you can't have other kind of intimacy, the Torah doesn't say. The idea that you can't have a meaningful partnership in raising a family, the Torah doesn't say. The idea that you can't have a civil partnership or a, a, you know any kind of recognized relationship, the Torah doesn't say. So basically, the rabbis who wrote that paper used the idea of kavod habriot, human dignity, and a precedent that when there is something that is set in halakha, which is violates human dignity, we can overturn it as long as it's by the rabbis for the sake of human dignity. It's a legal system, right? Halakha is a legal system. And that means we look at precedent and we look at concepts and we work them together. So the conclusion they came to in that paper was homosexuality or same-sex relationships are not themselves bad. Actually, we can understand them through the lens of human dignity and the fact that this is something people cannot change about themselves and not necessarily should change about themselves, but we nonetheless have to uphold that there is a very specific mitzvah that is a negative mitzvah regarding a very particular act. As they read something very narrowly and then open up the other side to allow it to kind of flourish in some way. That's a very typical rabbinic approach to a problem, which is what does the Torah actually say? How narrowly can we read it? And then what can we do with the rest of it? being more about ethics than anything else. Same thing happens with the same, uh, not same, with the death penalty. Right? The Torah says you can kill people, the rabbis don't want to. They legislate it out of existence by using ethical values and precedent to try and actually change the implied and applied aspect of the law. So it's really quite complicated, right? I think a lot of Jewish people who haven't necessarily done much study in these sort of texts go, ah, rabbis just make stuff up, right? They just go, ah, this is the law now. But actually, it's engaging with a whole legal system of which there's precedent, there's things that are weighted differently, and there's things that you can and can't change and ways in which you can and can't change them. And that's that's the halakhic system. How you apply that, then you have some debate, right? So both Orthodox and Masorti communities are halakhic in that way, that we do things based on that system, but they would disagree about what the precedents are that are acceptable and how what the threshold is for when you can overturn things. But it's a discussion inside the system, right, inside the halakhic system. Whereas reform and liberal and progressive say, actually, the halakhic system is done. So you have a big gap there in some way about how do we understand halakha. But that's not our topic for this evening, but it's a great question. Okay, I'm going to erase all this, uh, which is fine because you can't read it anyway, mostly. Um, and instead, what I will look at now, so these are the kind of rabbinic concepts. So there's more, right, but these are some of the rabbinic concepts. This idea of Musar added much more. And that's what I want to focus on for the last few minutes. And these are the Musar concepts. So the first texts that really deal with Musar as an idea are medieval. And for the last thousand years, there's been a whole tradition around actually Musar as a practice. So what I mean by that is, let's take the 19th century, the rabbi who sent his students to go get nails at the grocery store, right? What he meant in that time is Musar was a practice. So each week, 
They would be assigned one of the midot to work on. They would have practices they had to do each day to condition themselves to be better about them. They would meet once a week for what we would today call group therapy, where they talk about how well they did that week at their assigned task. And then they would criticize each other in a supportive environment, hopefully. And then they would work on a different midah the next week. And this would be part of their practice. It's kind of studying a particular midah, looking at the texts and stories and background for it, practicing it, and then analyzing the practice. It's, it's basically CBT, right? RBT, right? So um, these, are, these are some of the traditional midot. There's a long list that you could include, but these are some of them. I'm going to write them in English up here. Uh, patience, savlanut. Um, and again, the English words are not always a great translation. Patience is not really the best word for savlanut. It's more about kind of tolerating things, putting up with stuff, going with the flow almost to some degree. Anava is humility. Again, what exactly that means is complicated. Hakaratatov uh, is gratitude. Gratitude. My English spelling is going to be challenged. Rachmanut is compassion. Zerizut uh, is enthusiasm. Particularly, it's a desire to do things fast, right? So to be zariz in Hebrew, zarizut is you have something you need to do, go and do it, right? Don't waste time. Just be excited, enthusiastic. The word you often see in English for this is alacrity, but I don't think anyone's used that for the last 250 years. Um, shtika is, is quiet, literally quiet, um, keeping your mouth shut uh, when you shouldn't, when you should. Nidivut is generosity. I want to illustrate this idea here. We've got yirah, which is awe, uh, emunah, which is faith or belief. You can translate it. Again, these are really problematic words in English. Emet, which is truth, also a problematic word. Bitachon, which is trust. And achrayut, which is responsibility. So these ones are pulled from a very famous Musar text um, that was actually, interestingly, based on Benjamin Franklin's personal diary, who Benjamin Franklin had this practice of working on one virtue each each week or something, and this rabbi completely cribbed it and turned it into a whole Jewish system. But even long before that, yes, yes, taking people's ideas without credit. I think he does give him credit, by the way. Um, but even long before that, right, these ideas were, oh, it's our, our, our tenant. Yeah. Even before that, these ideas were very commonly explored in other texts. So some of them go all the way back to Sufi influence communities in the 11th century. They get explored in lots of different places, and some emphasize more other than others. So, you know, they would give you practices for patience, like, you know, you need to go talk to someone you don't like and not get angry this week, you know, to go do it four times and then keep a diary entry and report on it. Or humility, like going to the wrong store and asking for the wrong thing. So you get used to actually what it feels like to... Uh, to, to be humble and to be meek and whatever else. Gratitude, looking at things that have been gone well in your life and actually writing them down and thinking about them and saying thank you to people. Um, compassion, lots of ways to apply that, of course. Enthusiasm, we talked about Zerizut, it's kind of rushing to do things, not waiting around. Quiet is one that's very hard. There's lots of rabbinic texts about how important it is to be quiet, to not only speak. There's a great line from one of the rabbis whose dad was a rabbi that said, you know, the, I spent my whole life among the rabbis and the best thing I ever learned is to keep my mouth shut, um, which makes sense, right? And so you could have a whole practice, a Musar practice of actually for this month, for this week, for this year, whatever it is, I'm going to try and say less, right? I'm going to either go on a vow of silence for a period of time, or I'm going to make sure that I say in this conversation half the things I would have said otherwise or whatever else it might be. Generosity, often linked to charity, to zakah. People will kind of push themselves to give more, to focus more on giving awe, right? Often related to nature and other things, but also just kind of an emotion almost of conditioning yourself. Faith, trust, truth. I wrote trust and truth, yeah. Um, which are themselves kind of fuzzy ideas in some way, but how we understand them in the context of this Jewish development matters a lot. Responsibility, kind of thinking about what you're responsible for, et cetera. So this is a system of kind of virtue ethics, it's called officially. And actually, the original person who really piloted this was Aristotle, um, the great rabbi. And um, the idea is that our ethical behavior is based on our virtues, right? So someone who is ethical is someone who is patient, humble, gracious, compassionate, enthusiastic, quiet, generous, uh, has awe, not awful, um, faithful, truthful, trustful, and responsible. Right? That's the kind of Aristotelian approach to ethics is that people are defined by their characteristics. 
we do have some of that in Judaism in this Musar community, but ultimately all of these are focused on behaviors. The question is, what does it mean to be humble? What does that look like behaviorally? And they'll give you examples of, oh, it means kind of, you know, you take up less space when you sit down in a room or you raise your hand less often in class. Even if you know the answer, you let someone else answer it instead. So it, again, focuses very much on this idea of behavior. And there's a huge breadth of sources regarding a lot of these ideas, from the vaguer rabbinic ideas about things inspired by mitzvot to all of these midot. And it's actually a really nice practice to undertake, right? It's something that can really help us in many ways to focus on our spiritual development. Um, one last thing I'll say, and then I'm happy to discuss a bit because I don't want to monopolize, is um, there's, a, there's a book I've been working on translating for many years, which I enjoy studying quite a bit, called Sharei Kedusha, means Gates of Sanctity. Um, and it's a, it's a mystical meditation manual in many ways, but is written also as a Musar book. It was written in the 1540s. And the rabbi who wrote it basically sat down to write a little book for people to say, like, here's how you'd be a good person. And a lot of it is focused on these character attributes, thinking about what that looks like and what you should do. A lot of it's focused on how you observe the mitzvot. He sees them as interlinked. And then there's a sense that actually from there, you can develop your spiritual life further. But he makes a really amazing statement at one point, which is that he says that it is more important to, to have good character than it is to do the laws of the Torah. Not something you usually hear a rabbi say, right? Why does he say that? His explanation is that if you have good character, then you'll naturally and easily fulfill the laws of the Torah, right? If you condition yourself to be gracious and responsible and humble and kind, then you won't have a problem paying your employees on time or looking after the animals who are in your care or giving 10% of your money as a tithe for those who are poor, right? But if actually you never focus on character and you only focus on the mitzvot, if you remove this part from Jewish life, then you're just going to be someone who is observing the law in a rote fashion without any concern for why. And you're going to do the bare minimum probably of what you have to do to say, yeah, I tick that box. It becomes a literal box ticking exercise where Judaism is a video game that you level up by doing more meets vote. And he, he really is very critical of that and suggests that actually we have it backwards in some way. The mitzvot are really important, and they're our goal is to observe the mitzvot, but in some way we kind of need to start with how do we develop those behavioral patterns in ourselves, and then we'll naturally uh, come to be people who do the mitzvot and see more meaning in them. And it's probably a good idea, because there's a long-standing idea, I'll just, uh, it's no use, uh, in a rabbinic commentary in the medieval period, where there's this idea of being a naval b'rashuta Torah. You heard this idea? Yeah. How would you translate that? So I would say it's it's um, being a shithead in the bounds of Torah, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the idea is that you can be completely within the bounds of Torah. You can do all the mitzvot. You can only buy kosher food and you can do all the things you want. You can observe all 613 of them if you have the opportunity and still be rubbish. Right. And still be a, a bad person in some way or a naval, which is a great word that I think in modern version is probably shithead. And that's a very real thing. Right. I think many people see that in religion, not just Judaism, but in religion. They see people who are a naval Torah and go, yeah, I'm so good. I do all the Torahs meets out. Look at me. But they never think once about what it means to be patient or kind or humble and how that supports that. And it really demeans the whole enterprise of observing mitzvot. It doesn't inspire other people to want to do it. If you think about people that you maybe have met who inspire you to want to be religious, it's people who start with this, right? Yes, I'm sure they, they do the mitzvot, but actually what's more important is how they behave and what they do and how those behaviors actually manifest themselves in the world. So there's actually a very rich tradition in some way of seeing these things interlinked, but the ethical side of Judaism is basically not as developed as the legal side. It's more of a loose set of concepts. But there have been people and communities and times where the ethical side has been put as the primary focus, or at least a dual focus with the observance of the law. I think probably that's a good thing, and maybe we should make our time one of those as well. So the resurgence of the Musar movement is probably a really good thing in some way, because it helps to contextualize this contemporary fascination with being, in some way, a purposeful and very annoying Naval Barashuta Torah doing exactly the law of the Torah, but never doing anything more than that, um, is not really the goal that we should aim for, I think, in terms of Jewish life.
Sweetie.